0: I'm speaking with Michael Boatman. His new book is The Revenant Road. Thank you for joining me, Michael.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Michael, I, your book is all about monsters, and we were just talking about it. I, I'm a big monster fan. Tell us, when did you first decide to write about monsters?
1: I decided to write about monsters. I've always loved monsters. Uh, I'm a huge horror fan, and uh, I'm not a fan of, like, slasher films. I mean, like everyone, Friday the 13th, Halloween, those are great films, but I love Dracula. I love werewolves. I love, And I love different takes on monsters. I love, I love takes from other parts of the world. Every community in the world, you learn, as I learned when I was doing certain pieces of research for this book, every community from Africa to China to, you know, parts of Asia and Europe, they all have their monsters. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to bring those ideas to America since America is a melting pot? You know, our monsters should be a part of that melting pot. And so when I started writing this book, it was, it was sort of partly an homage to the old Night Stalker TV series because I love that idea about a guy who's trying to tell the world, look, there's monsters out there. It's not, the world is not as it appears, and no one believes him. There's something about that idea that I loved. And and that's where basically the idea came from.
0: Now, tell us uh, uh, about some of the research, and, and maybe give us, can you give us a preview of some of the kinds of monsters? <laughs> Uh,
1: I you know it's great the the, the internet is it, it's the greatest time in the world to be a writer right now because of the internet I I researched ancient uh, there there is a monster in the Revenant Road um, called the, Yiren, the Yiren, Yeren with the Yeren Y E R E N which is a Chinese Bigfoot basically it's a Chinese wild man and he plays a huge part in the book um, but there's also something called a Sukayant which is a monster from Trinidad which is sort of a It's a vampire, but it's a vampire that crawls out of its skin when it's attacked and flies around the room in in the form of a ball of fire, you know, burning people and blasting people with fire. And the only way to destroy this particular Caribbean vampire is to fill its empty skin with salt. It then has to climb into the skin, which actually happens in the book, and count every grain of salt, and then you can stake it or whatever. And when you got you got ideas like you got material like that, you just got to put that in a book. And so I just thought, wouldn't it be great to find ways to incorporate, you know, monsters from other traditions in the world besides the old sort of Central European, you know, Dracula, werewolves, that sort of thing? And yet those guys also make appearances in the book as well.
0: Now, this is the first book in a series, I hope.
1: Yeah, I, I'm tentatively calling it the Damnation of, Ob- the Damnation of Obadiah Grudge series, but uh, The Revenant Road is the first book. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about
0: this character. I really like his name, and I like his attitude too.
1: Yeah, Obadiah Grudge is a, a very successful, best-selling crime writer. Um, he's a bit of a misanthrope. He doesn't like people very much. He doesn't even like himself. He lives in a in a in a in, in a brownstone in Brooklyn with black walls, the only color in his apartment. Is um, a review that was sent in by a, a critic that reviewed one of his books, who actually vomited on the on the review and submitted it for publication. And Obadiah, because he's a little bit perverse and angry, he actually posted and put that review up on his walls to give just to give his walls a splash of color. But he's a guy who's um, he's he's sort of angry. He was uh, he was abandoned by his father when he was nine years old, and as it turns out, in the over the course of the book, we discover that his father didn't just abandon him because of the old sort of typical reasons it turns out that his father was actually the world's greatest monster hunter and that he was abandoning his father his 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 wife and son to protect them that in fact monsters were you know trying to kill Marcus Grudge who was Obadiah's father and in order to sort of lead the monsters and this there's a there's a there's a whole sort of community of monsters that come from a, a sort of an alien realm that I call the raving in the book and um they basically sort of follow Marcus Grudge away from Obadiah and Lenore, his wife and family. But as a result, Obadiah still grows up without a father, and he's very angry about it. And so he's, he takes out his anger by drinking and by writing these very angry pieces to The New Yorker and writing very angry stories, which are bestsellers.
0: Now, um, could you talk uh, about um, creating the arc of this first novel? Because when you're doing this, you have a lot of work to kind of set stuff up, but you still want to tell a story.
1: Yeah. It's important to tell a story. I wanted to sort of, in in the first book, I wanted to introduce... The readers of course to Obadiah because I, I think that the way that you draw readers in is through character um, I, I felt that I had a really good idea in in, in the idea of a, of a modern day monster killer monster hunter but I, I wanted him to be a reluctant monster killer there's you know he doesn't even believe in monsters he doesn't want to believe in monsters at one point in the book he he, he reveals that horror fans People who read horror stories love his his novels, even though they're not horror. They're they're crime stories. And he doesn't know why. He doesn't understand why horror fans would love it. There are no monsters, there are no vampires or werewolves in his books. But what later comes out in the book in, in, in this book is that he, he discovers that he's sort of subconsciously channeling the energies of this other, you know, alien land, the raving, into his writing. And so people are responding to it almost on a subconscious level. And in fact, the raving is Every one of our of humanity's monsters sort of made real that, in fact, when you go to sleep and dream about monsters chasing you in the night, that you're actually going to a real place and that this is the raving. And from here, the monsters are emerging into our world, and this is what provides sort of the first threat for that Obadiah has to, has to encounter as a monster killer you mean the entire staff of UC Irvine is 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 alive at night in the raving That's right there 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 are there's very specific kind of monsters there but uh, yes now tell us a little bit about
0: when you set up this kind of world like this do you have like a kind of an off stage book that you know like a do you, are you creating like the 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 uh, user's guide to
1: uh, life with the raving um yeah i i i do i think that um you know the raving sort of has its own rules, you know, and i 'm discovering those rules obviously as you go along but um yeah i mean I, there's there's actually in in this edition of the novel there's a there 's a sort of a bonus short story at the end of it where the characters you, you learn a little bit more about the raving and what this means and what it means that there's actually another dimension set apart from earth where all of humanity 's monsters actually dwell and um so yeah i mean it's 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 when i was writing the novel it was still a little hazy i tried to make it as specific as i can but you didn't travel too much into the realm in in the first book it's more about the monsters from our nightmares breaching the 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 sort of barrier into our world and coming in and being a threat that way
0: one of the things i loved about your reading and about the book just when i picked it up it it's really hilarious. You use uh, swear words really good, and, and swearing is a really important part of humor. That kind of there's this kind of pacing. Could you talk about you know choosing the language because
1: it, it seems like it's made to read aloud? You know, it's interesting. That's a good question uh, because I'm an actor, and I've spent so much time, so much of my adult life as an actor, and, and, and listening to playwrights and listening to screenwriters, listening to their words and how they choose words. Dialogue is really important to me, and it's something that I think I have a uh, a a peculiar gift for for rendering on on the page and um, so for me, and dialogue is something that I appreciate in other writers' works as well. And for me, I really wanted the dialogue in this in this book to sort of really propel the story, much uh, hopefully more than in, than in other books. Um, and swearing, I, I love to swear. I, I try not to. I have four kids now, so I don't swear as much. So all of my all of my repressed rage goes into my books and goes into my stories. And so I think there's nothing there's nothing better than a, than a well chosen swear word. I, I I think that. I I have friend I have one particular friend in fact who is who's a, is a brilliant swearer he just but he's only he doesn't overswear he doesn't underswear it's just enough and so I I always sort of think it's fun and and sometimes it's even still a little shocking to see the f bomb dropped in the middle of a of a tirade about you know vampires or something but and it's also how you know real people talk so now, one thing about books like this is that they give you the opportunity
0: to talk about things that are happening in the real world and, and address address those issues. Could you talk about uh, doing that in this book?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, all fictional horror is metaphor. I mean, and so I, when I was writing The Revenant Road, I, I, I remember sort of it was, I believe it was right at the beginning, right around midway through the Iraq war and this idea that humanity was sort of being besieged in our sleep by this other realm was very much influenced by the war. That the idea that there is this other place on the other side of the planet where horrific things are happening and it really could be something that we could ignore Except for the fact that all of those people who were hurt and injured and killed have to come back home, and and be a part and be and be and be a part of our society, and so I, I see that now. I see that metaphor now. At the time when I was working on it, I just sort of remember thinking, oh, you know, this has something to do with the war, and I couldn't really put my finger on it as specifically as I can with hindsight now, but. That, that was very much sort of in my mind as I was writing about the raving and, and, and what, it, what this idea that there were these events happening beyond our common purview, which now then begin to spill back into our everyday world.
0: I've been speaking with Michael Boatman. His new book is The Revenant Road. Thank you for joining me, Michael.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. An Affair to Dismember, part three. (laughs) Three days after my father's funeral, I was lying on the sofa in my apartment, surrounded by the emptied contents of my liquor cabinet and wishing I'd majored in brain surgery. There were several choice moments from the previous 72 hours that I would have happily cauterized. I was hungry. I hadn't eaten solid food since the morning of the funeral. I sat up. The pain in my head immediately called me an idiot and punished me accordingly. At first, I thought the blinking red light in the corner of my eye was a burst blood vessel. Then I realized that it was my answering machine. (laughs) I pushed the play button, and my mother's voice filled my living room. Obadiah, I haven't heard from you. We need to talk. Call me. Beep. Obadiah, hi, it's Mark Bloom. Remember me, the publicist you're underpaying to make you internationally fabulous? Listen, I booked you on Juno for the day after tomorrow. Beep. Obadiah. Neville Kowalski calling. I rubbed the crust out of my eyes. I don't know exactly what your mother told you, but I can guess. I'd like to meet with you today, maybe over lunch at the White Fedora, say, 1.30? I reached over and turned up the volume. I know this seems odd, Kowalski's voice continued, but there's a few matters need clarifying before we can proceed. Before we can proceed? There's a whole lot you don't know about your old man. I'd like to tell you the real story. I'd like for you to understand what Marcus was all about. I hope you'll come. The machine asked me if I wanted to erase my messages. I looked at my watch. Twenty minutes to get to the white fedora. I got up, got dressed, ran past my kitchenette, and into the street to chase down a cab. I could eat after lunch. Thirty-two minutes later, I stepped out of a taxi at the corner of Broadway and 47th Street. A healthy lunch crowd swirled around me. As I stepped up onto the curb, I was jostled by a group of fat Midwestern tourists. One of them, the obvious leader of the pack, grabbed me by the shoulders. Sorry, my brother, he brayed. Say, you and me aren't going to have a problem here, are we, Roscoe? The rest of the pack yipped and chattered like overfed hyenas. The red-faced pack leader pounded my shoulder and roared with what I might have taken to be corn-fed good humor if I hadn't been nearly asphyxiated by the vodka fumes eddying out of his enormous pores. Without waiting for my reply, the fleshy adventurers moved on up the sidewalk, filling the air with harsh Midwestern R's, smashing every vowel flatter than the flattest flapjack as they pursued the ephemeral pleasures of Times Square, Restaurant Row, and the Great White Way. The shrieking lunatic was almost a welcome relief. I turned, expecting to see some perfectly ordinary crack-addled urban wild man caught up, perhaps, in the throes of a brick-wielding frenzy. Instead, I was stunned to see a portly man wearing a smart cardigan and khakis, waving a butcher knife, crossing 47th Street at a dead run. (laughs) Die! (laughs) He was talking to me. As people around me scattered like roaches, I had one second to realize that I knew the wild-eyed lunatic. That's Copernicus Geller. Geller dodged a speeding bike messenger and came on, his eyes wild as he screamed, DIE! Then the crosstown bus smashed into him. Geller flew west 30 feet through the air and landed on Broadway, dead center of the southbound lane. It was 1.42 p.m., the height of the midtown lunch rush. Geller sprang to his feet. He'd managed to hold onto the knife, but his left arm jutted at an angle that would have confounded the nation's greatest contortionists. Undeterred, Geller turned, spotting me in the gawking crowd, lifted the knife, DIE! and was struck by a taxi. The taxi driver screamed in some Middle Eastern dialect as Geller bounced off the roof, slid down the back windshield, rolled off the trunk, and hit the concrete. Again, Geller managed to stagger to his feet. Or rather, his foot. Most of his right leg was rounding the corner of 48th Street, dragged beneath the wheels of the fleeing taxi. Disoriented, Geller hopped backward into the northbound lane, just as a speeding UPS truck thundered into the intersection and blasted him through the window of the nearest Starbucks. (laughs) As tourists and New Yorkers of every stripe ran toward the scene of the accident, I turned and made my way back up the street. Copernicus Geller was the book book critic for the New York Sentinel. He hosted a weekly national cable show called Lit Beat, during which he'd once burned a copy of my novel Death and the Sorcerer while singing God Bless America. <laughs> One nut job down, I thought with warm satisfaction. My step even grew lighter as I made my way back up, seven, back up 47th Street. I even whistled. Sorry I'm late. Traffic.
0: Speaking with Deborah Grabian, she's the author of the Haunted Ballad series and the J.P. Kincaid series. Thank you for joining me, Deborah. You bet. My pleasure to be here. Deborah, you combine elements of mystery and with some fantasy elements. Why? How do you judge when you
2: want to do that? What makes you say this is a fantasy-oriented story? Well, actually, I don't. Um, basically, as, as a writer, I'm in the service to the story, and it tells me. Um, with the haunted ballads I write a lot about music and with the haunted ballads each of those titles um, The Weaver and the Factory Maid "The Famous Flower of Serving Men Maddie Groves which is a very famous one Cruel Sister and New Sleigh Night are all classic child ballads and it occurred to me that those as I was writing the first one I was writing a ghost story and it occurred to me that they're bardic songs in the bardic tradition they tell a story they're not ooh baby baby or oh I love someone so much there's a story in there Kind of like the modern concept of spin. You're only getting one person's POV on that song. What if that's not what actually happened? So what that led to was the Haunted Ballads in which um, uh, Ringin Rupert Lane, who is known as Ringen, who is a Scotsman, a guitar player, has a band called Broomfield Hill and a theatrical producer, longstanding girlfriend named Penny, um, finds himself in a haunting, and the only way to get rid of this particular haunting entity is to find out the truth behind the song what actually happened um and that goes through all five books now they're not i mean they can be read individually but like any of my series they really are a chronicle i mean they one picks up where the last one left off you can pick up the fourth one and be fine you know not having read the first three but you'll probably want to go back and read the first three because everything flows into into the next one um, with the standalones, again, it, it's it's the story, the the concept of a serial killer in Still Life with Devils who may or may not be human and a painter who can walk into her own paintings. Or it's just like I, these were characters that I saw and said, okay, everything I write is character-driven. I'm going to take them, put them on a road, and say, go that way. Point toward the end of the road and say, go that way. I'm going to follow them down, and they're going to tell me what their journey is, and I'm going to write about it. So no. there you go. <laughs> it, it interests me. The the
0: ballad uh, series interests me. It must must require quite a bit of research to find out the stories behind the ballads and when they were written. And, and you called them child ballads. I don't think you meant that they were for children. What do you mean by that?
2: No. child. Well, Francis J. Child is the premier collector of traditional music in the British Isles, not just England, but... A very high percentage come from Scotland. Uh, some are Cornish. Some are even from the from the north of France, sort of Bre- uh, Breton, uh, and from Wales as well. England and Scotland provide most of them. There are quite a few Irish ones, but uh, his name was Francis J. Child. The collection is there in five volumes. They've recently come out in paperback, which is a good thing because they were out of print for 30 years, and if you wanted one volume, they were running about $600 a pop. <laughs> um, there are other classic collectors of, of, of you know British music in different versions, but the Child ballads themselves, he has. you will have 16 different versions of, of the same song as interpreted from different... Sections of the world, and sometimes you get them over here. "Cruel Sister," which um, um, Pentangle had an, actually was a, was an album title and, and an album side in the '60s. There is a, a wonderful American version of it called "The Dreadful Wind and Rain," which Jerry Garcia and David Grisman recorded. Uh, it's the same song with the you know same story, same song, same exact and except one of them is a is a you know a, a a border ballad from from Scotland one of them is Appalachian and then of course you have Martin Carthy and Dave Swarbrick with Brass Monkey doing um a song called the bows of London which is the English version same song um different melody entirely but the same story so if you don't even have one you know one steady version then you know you're you're not getting everybody's pov so i got to play with it with a given song and, and 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 do that and I so I have I have massive collections I do know a lot about the music because I've been into it for forty years, <laughs> so. Uh, have you? Are you a musician yourself? Yes, I am. What do you play and what do you sing? Well, um, songwriter, lyricist. Um, these days, because I have multiple sclerosis and the hands don't work as well as they used to, um, I stick to guitar. Uh, we have. Th- 13 of them on stands in the house and several more that are in their cases just because there's no floor room. But I'm also married to a bass player, a very good one. And, uh, you know, we've, we've played together since basically since we met. That's how we met in 1976. These days I say guitar, but in my day I have played, God, I've played piano badly. Um, I can play bass. I have played, my first instrument was harpsichord um, organ. I wish I could play violin. My father was a fiddler, but it. I've never been able to, to deal with the the high frequency in, in the ear just makes me nuts. So these days we'll just call me a guitar player and a lyricist, and go from there. Tell us about um, the locations,
0: because uh, clearly, the uh, Still Life with Devils was set here in Northern California. Are all your
2: stories set here? No, not at all. Um, location for me is a character. It is. It is. Is it? Is in any Any location I use is an integral part of the, such an integral part of that given story that it's a character unto its own right. <coughs> So, so yes, locations. Um, basically, the Kincaid Chronicles, J.P. Kincaid, the new series. He is a he's an ex-Session man and now basically member of a world-class band. He is a, an ex-Londoner who lives in San Francisco. Um, the Haunted Ballads take place in and around the UK, and mostly you know England, Northern England. Um, the last one, new slay Night, is almost entirely in Cornwall. Yes, I'm encroaching on Daphne du Maurier's territory, but she she is still the goddess of Cornwall. Um, so and and uh, in um, and then put out the light. She travels. I mean, it, it. We start in San Francisco, where she lives. She actually lives in the East Bay. Um, it moves to Greece, and and you know the, the hills around Delphi and Heraclion. Uh From there to Rome, from Rome down to Herculaneum, from there to England, and from England, the last third of the book takes place in France, which is a country that I know and love, and I'm very familiar with. And again, the location just. It just soaks through because it is location is I think and should be in any good any good book should be a character unto itself.
0: Well, that's fascinating. Um,
2: tell us a little bit about uh,
0: when you decide something standalone and when it fits into the series.
2: Ah, yeah, that's that's one of those. Um, you honestly never know. You really don't n- until you're there. I wrote *The Weaver* and *The Factory Maid* um, and *Rock and Roll Never Forgets*, which are. You know, uh, respectively, the, the first Haunted Ballad and the first J.P. Kincaid Chronicle, as standalones, that's what I thought, um, with with uh, with the Kincaids, which were just the books of my heart. I wrote the first one, 92,000 words, in 29 days, and said, OK, it's my midlife crisis book, bleeding this book, I needed to write it. And two days later, I had started While My Guitar Gently Weeps, and I finished that in 33 days. That comes out this September, St. Martin's Press. Um, with The Weaver and the Factory Maid, um it had been percolating for a while and i think halfway through that one i thought you know what i think if this gets bought i'm i'm going to turn this this feels like a series this feels like i i want more of these characters i want them to go down that road and the haunted ballads the first one is 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 very is fairly light it's it's a very sweet book it's a set up book you know the there's there's nothing the only the only thing dangerous about the ghosts is the fact that they're unnatural i mean they're but as 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 the books go along, uh, the the hauntings are a little more perilous. I mean, we have by the time we get to Maddie Groves in the third one, they're literally dealing with an incubus, and he is vicious and unpleasant. And it tackles the question of whether or not, in fact, what we think of as as demons, you know, or evil spirits or whatnot, are actually just horrible, miserable totally tight little human beings who are so crappy and disgusting in real life, they have nowhere to go but down, you know, no redemption. That, that, that sort of leathery hideous is basically their personality showing. So, you know, I, I saw that one as a series halfway through the first book. I knew that was going to, I could see me taking them further and further down that road. Well, this is very fascinating. Now, tell me
0: about um, your, your publishing. You're working with a small press publisher. Tell us about uh, Drollery Press.
2: Well, I've got it's it's interesting. At the moment, I actually have uh, work with four publishers, and they run the gamut. Um, just to to get the big ones out of the way, uh, the the Kincaid Chronicles and the Haunted Ballads are on uh, St. Martin's Thomas Don Minotaur, which is their their mystery imprint. Um, I'm in an anthology called For Keeps, which is nonfiction, which is a book of essays about women dealing talking women authors talking about, you know, aging, health, etc. And that one's with Seal Press, which is a nice, solid little press across the Bay in Berkeley. Um, Egmont, which is a young adult publisher, the oldest uh, existing young adult publisher. They were a Dutch company. They've been uh, in the U.K. as well for years. Just opened Egmont USA. Um, I am in spring 2010, Dark in the Park, which does have a fantasy element to it. It's... um, narrated by a, uh, an abandoned cat in Golden Gate Park having to learn how to sort of survive and trust and who to trust and forming friendships and alliances. And then, we, of course, we have the incursion of coyotes into the park, which we've really had. So this is from our experience as cat rescuers. We're out in Golden Gate Park every night, no matter what the weather is, and we have been for 10 years. So we know the night world of the park, and we know the people who live there, and we, we know the animals, and we know what is there and what isn't. Uh, and there's there are ghosts in the park, so there's quite a, a strong fantasy element to that. Um, and Drollery has these two of mine, and two of my short, you know, two of my short stories, um, fiction pieces as well. Drollery is the brainchild of Dina Fisher. Now, Dina, her husband is with the library, the the, the Greater Cleveland Library System, and it, it is a big library system. This Cleveland, Ohio, huge system. Uh, Dina has a love of books, and she has a talent for picking out what's going on where. And when she wanted to start Drollery, uh, she approached me and she said, what would it take to get you to give me Still Life with Devils? And I said, nothing. You want it? Absolutely. Sure. Because I think that in the end, with the current economic model and the fact that the, the mainstream houses really are not adapting to what they need to do, you know, it's like guys, as as, as handsome and as, as literary cred as much, because I'm a literary writer, as much cred as it is to have the 2495 hardback on the shelf, Ask any bookstore owner; they'll tell you they can't sell them. You know, in this economy, if you can buy the book as a six ninety five paperback or as a twenty five dollar hardback, unless you're a collector, you're going for paper. And trade paper, which is what Drillery is put, putting out with with Michael's book and with mine, um, hits that that price point and that gamut beautifully. It's in the mid range pricing; it's still affordable. They're beautiful covers you know, and Dina has what I wish I saw more of in the publishing industry these days, she has a huge amount of integrity and she's really dedicated to getting this to work, you know a lot of what they do is um, I mean, they're, they're they're what she calls transformative fiction, so there's magic realism, there's fantasy, there's horror there's, you know, anything with the element of what you can't see um, they do a lot of e-publishing you know, uh, you know so for, you know, novellas and short stories, but for the print novels my job basically my responsibility when I when I gave them the book was to get them on the map because I was an established author with a lot of literary cred I and mean, Publishers Weekly reviews everything I write you know Kirkus reviews everything I write and they like me which is almost unheard of they don't like anybody um, Library Journal keeps starring my books and they called Rock and Roll Never Forgets was their lead mystery of the summer it was their big beach read so yeah and School Library Journal loved me book list reviews everything I do so it's like Yes Publishers Weekly reviewed still life when it came out, and they loved it. They wanted a sequel, so you know my job was to help get them on the map and you know in return I, you know I got I got them to, to put out just a wonderful edition of a book that I'm very fond of, and that just because it, it's so not straight genre, you know a mainstream publisher wasn't going to be able to do anything with it. you know um, I honestly do think that that small presses maybe the future of publishing, especially in the age of the Internet. I mean, they have publishers are going to have to adapt to that, or they're just going to fold. We've been seeing mainstream publishing has been imploding the last couple of weeks. It's been nightmarish. We have editors who are, you know, and, and, and you know, staff who are, who are friends at some of the main houses have just lost their jobs. You know, a couple of the big houses have just, you know, Random House. HarperCollins just got rid of the Collins. <laughs> they are no longer HarperCollins. They're now just Harper because they folded Collins, and a bunch of editors lost their jobs. And... They're going to have to adapt. They're in a terrible economy, and you know, at the moment they have they have they have the history and they have the distribution, which is in their favor. I'd like to see more small presses out there. I'd like to see a return. Yes, I'm an agented author. I'd like to see a return to publishers where you can go over the transom with it and have them read it. You know, yes, and they can do that.
0: I've been speaking with Deborah Grabian. Her
2: newest book is Still Life with Devils. Thank you for joining me, Deborah. You bet actually the the newest book on drollery, the recent the, the current one is and then put out the light on drollery. Still life came out first and then put out the light just came out in January. Thank you for joining me, Deborah. Thank you.
3: is your native tongue, or it's not, but you know it well enough to be dreaming in it. You don't need a book that teaches grammar from the ground up. All you need is a guide that answers the questions you have from time to time, an explanation of the problems that typically crop up when you're writing sentences. Some relate to grammar. Is it who or whom, will or would, its with an apostrophe or its without? Some relate to usage. Is it lie or lay, affect or effect, every day as one word or every day as two words? Some relate to punctuation. What belongs here, a comma or semicolon, Dash or hyphen? Single quotes or double? Whatever the question, this book answers it in a way that will make sense to you. Now how can I make that claim when I don't know you and I've never seen your sentences? Unless you're very different from the thousands of people I've taught over the last three decades in both academic and business classrooms, I do know you and I have seen your sentences. I know where your grammar and usage errors hang out. I know where your punctuation gaffes live. I can tell you exactly what those characters look like and the fragrances they wear. After reading this text, you'll be able to spot a mistake from around the corner. You may even be able to smell
0: it. Janice Bell is an English professor and writing consultant and teaches writing and grammar at Golden Gate University. Her first book is Clean, Well-Lighted Sentences. Thank you for joining me, Janice. Oh, it's my pleasure. Janice, there are a lot of different grammar books out there, and i just like to ask you, you know, t- tell me first, what other books are do people typically have out there?
3: Well, people talk about Strunk and White. They've been talking about that for years, and it's a lovely book. Um, actually, those are the authors. The name of the book is Elements of Style. Most people recognize it. It's mostly about style, though. There are a couple of hints about grammar and a little bit about punctuation, but uh, not enough really to target the kinds of mistakes that people are making nowadays. And it isn't just nowadays that they've been making for decades.
0: Now, another book that I think is is often also uh, mentioned is the Chicago Manual of Style. Yes,
3: and of course, that's an excellent reference book. It's huge also. Uh, it also is not a discussion of grammar with sample sentences and questions and answers and quizzes, etc. But it's a wonderful reference book, especially if you understand grammar terminology because of course it uses a lot of it.
0: Now you've written your new book Clean Well Lighted Sentences is a kind of a different kind of grammar book. What inspired you to write it?
3: I've been teaching writing for 35 years and I've seen a lot of writing not just in universities but in the workplace. Um, Profit, non-profit government, I've, I've I've taught nonstop, not even taking summers off. So I've seen hundreds of thousands of papers that people produce. And uh, over and over again, I see the same mistakes cropping up. And I'm talking about writers who are native speakers of English. So it it occurred to me that people don't need a grammar book, as I just read from my introduction, from the ground up. They just need to be told about these typical errors that keep happening. Um, and if one explains it to them and gives them examples and shows them the kinds of sentence structures that are risky, then my feeling is perhaps uh, these errors are going to disappear and everybody's going to be writing clearly. I I like this idea of risky sentences. (laughs) Well, some of them are risky to us because we don't really understand what we're doing. We don't understand certain kinds of structures. We don't know what we're into. And so we make the mistakes. And by the way, I'm going to extend that. We also don't understand fully what all of our punctuation marks do. So we rely heavily on commas and periods, and we're not so sure about those. Uh,
0: and you cover them quite well in this book. Now, tell me a little bit, when you de- how long ago did you decide to write this book?
3: Mm, let's see, uh, 2006.
0: So you've been teaching at that time for some 30-plus years. Mm-hmm. Why all of a sudden did you decide to write a book?
3: Well, I'll tell you the whole story. I had written another book. I never got it published. I never tried to get it published. I was using it in my classrooms, and I could tell from that book uh, what to do for this book. There was a lot more in that book. It was a little bit more academic. There was more grammar terminology, believe it or not. Uh, This book uses grammar terminology, but only when I have to and I explain it. Uh, as clearly as possible at the beginning. And I explain it again every time I use it. I almost apologize for using grammar terms in this grammar book. But still, I like to think that it it will be very clear to everyone, not just people at universities. Stunning language. Uh, Anyway, that first book was more dense. It had more in it, and uh, it had errors in it that people weren't even making because they weren't writing those kinds of sentences anymore. So I had noticed that over the years, what was becoming... Out of date about that book, and decided that I would write a, a different one that was targeted only on the most common errors and nothing more.
0: And, and once you decided to start writing this book, y- you've been teaching writing at this point for thirty something years. You've already written a, another book. Um, tell me, you know, your process for for uh, creating this book. Did you the the way it's laid out is very organized and methodical. Was your method of writing it, organized and methodical?
3: Well, I should hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not quite sure what that means. Well, I knew the order in which I was going to discuss the different grammar issues, and I knew that the last chapter was going to be on punctuation. Uh, So I would sit down a week at a time and focus on one chapter, honing from my previous book only what people need to hear in 2006, 2007, 2008, etc., And so I guess in that sense, it's organized. But, you know, I've been teaching writing for a long time. So it's natural to me to stay on my topic and stay focused and stay well organized. That's what I do. Don't ask me about anything else in life. Believe (laughs) me.
0: Um, Well, tell us, uh, as you wrote this book, did you seek the advice of the people
3: you were teaching? Did you show it to people you were teaching and say, does this help Oh, I didn't show it to them. I remind you, I had written that other book, first of all, so Mm -hmm. I knew what was working and what wasn't working. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, it's also true that as I churned out a chapter for this book, I would use it in my classroom, and I would see... Uh, whether there were any questions or whether there was a segment of it that somebody wasn't clear on. And in one instance there was. I remember there was one sentence in one of my chapters that was ambiguous to one person, and so I changed it. Wow. That's why I, But, yeah, by now I know how people hear the language. I know what confuses them. I know um, how they will best receive the message that I'm trying to give. Believe me, I mean when you're teaching nonstop for that long and with such a diversity of people in your audiences... You get it. You understand how to explain something so that everybody in the room understands.
0: So this is uh, the book that you are not only born to
3: write, but you actually lived to write (laughs) to a certain extent. Absolutely. I I do feel that way. You think you're joking. I have a theory that when I go to the next life, everybody's English is going to be perfect. Not because they've read my book or had me as a teacher, but because I will no longer need a job. (laughs)
0: Could you talk, tell us um, once and for all, solve for us the riddle of who and whom, when to use what and why?
3: (laughs) (laughs) When to use what and why? Yes. (laughs) That would be easier than who and whom. (laughs) Well, whenever you have the choice between who or whom, the most important thing to remember is that you're at the beginning of a clause. You might be saying, oh my God, she's talking dirty already. But it's not that difficult. The clause is simply a word, uh, excuse me, a group of words that has a subject and a verb in it. You know, a person, place, or thing, and some kind of action. So again, whether you're in the middle of a sentence that ends in a period and you're trying to decide whether to use who or whom, or whether you're at the beginning of a question and you need to decide between who and whom, the first thing to think about is, okay, I'm at the beginning of a clause, which means a verb will be coming up, to the right. Go ahead and choose your who or whom, choose your who. Most people don't even use whom anymore, so the, choose your who. Put it on the page, continue to write the clause. Inside that idea, there will be a verb. There'll be an action word. If there's nobody else doing that action, then your choice of who is correct because the only job that who can do is the job of a subject. So who is correct when an upcoming verb needs a subject? For example, Janice, who took five hours to get to Santa Cruz from San Francisco, is finally here. Okay, let's look at the who clause. Who took. Well, the verb comes up pretty soon, doesn't it? It's right after the who. There's nothing in between the who and the took. Janice, who took. Took needs a subject. You may say, well, isn't the subject Janice? Nope, nope, nope. She's busy. She's inside another clause. She has another job. There's two clauses in that sentence. So we are to look only at the who clause when we're trying to decide whether to use who. The fact that took comes up right away means it needs a subject and the word who is correct. But If there were another word in between the who and the took, then who would not be correct. Let me give you an example. Janice, whom I took to Santa Cruz last week, is still scared to drive there herself. Janice, whom I took, whom I took. Well, took is still there, but I is there now too. And the The subject, I, is what is um, connected to the verb took. Or rather, the verb took has another word as its subject, I, right? So that clause doesn't need a second subject. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have a second verb. Every verb needs a subject. There's only one verb. It's going to have one subject. So that is why we choose to begin that clause with whom, whom I took, because we don't need a subject. You can boil it all down to this. You choose who. I think I said this already, actually, when an upcoming verb needs a subject. You choose whom when the upcoming verb doesn't need a subject because it already has one. There's already another person, place, or thing in there serving as the subject for the upcoming verb. Is that too grammatical? No, that makes perfect sense, which <laughs> is
0: why we hired you. I see. <laughs> well. Um, could you talk about uh, gerunds and, and as nouns especially because that's when they get confusing?
3: Well, that's what they're always doing. Mm -hmm. Um, In other words, that's what the term gerund means. If, If your audience is out there saying, oh my god, gerund, I've never heard that word, or it's been 19 years since I heard that word and I didn't understand it the first time around. All right, if you stick an ing on the end of an action word, like running, walking, swimming, dancing, that word could be doing quite a few jobs in a sentence that you write. But if it's doing the job of a noun, of a thing, if it's the subject of your sentence, or it occurs elsewhere in the sentence, but it's still serving the job as of a noun. We call it a gerund. For example, skiing is my favorite hobby. Skiing is my favorite hobby. Subject, skiing. Now, if you look back at it, you say, well, how can skiing be a subject? Isn't that an action? Isn't that a verb? Mm-mm. Not with an ing on the end of it. In fact, an action word with an ing on the end of it is never a verb. You would never say, I skiing, she skiing, he running, they walking, we dancing, right? It can be part of a verb package, but you have to put a real verb in there. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, when it's serving as a noun, these action words with ing endings, that's when we call them gerunds. It doesn't really, you can call them snails. It doesn't matter what you call them. And I wouldn't even be talking about them in my book if if we native speakers of English didn't have a particular problem. We don't have any problem with skiing is my favorite hobby. Or I enjoy running. We, don't, we will never make a mistake in a sentence like that. We don't know that we're using a gerund, and we don't need to know it because we're using it correctly. But there's a certain kind of sentence where a gerund crops up, and we don't know what to do with it a risky ahead of times. A risky sentence, exactly. <laughs> Let me give you an example of that. Uh, I appreciate you inviting me to the studio, or I appreciate your inviting me to the studio. <clears throat> you inviting me or you're inviting me. Now, the gerund is inviting because I'm saying I appreciate something, right? And if a word fills the spot of something, it's a noun. It's acting like a noun. I appreciate inviting is what I'm essentially saying. Most native speakers of English don't get this right. They would say and they would write, I appreciate you inviting me. But it should be I appreciate your inviting me because that inviting word is doing the job of a noun. I appreciate your noun. I appreciate your action, you see? Mm-hmm. that's the only kind of sentence where we have a trouble with a gerund. And it's really not the gerund that we're having trouble with. It's the word before it. Which is? You or your. Yeah, the You mean the terminology yes. for that? Uh, they're both pronouns. One yeah. is possessive. Yes. And we need the possessive form, your, because that would be correct if a real noun were coming up. For example, I appreciate your kindness. Kindness is a real noun, not a gerund, mm-hmm. an actual noun.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Not a verb masquerading (laughs) as one, right? Right. And so before that, we would always use a possessive word. We wouldn't have any problem. I appreciate your kindness. We never say, I appreciate you kindness. So why are we saying, I appreciate you inviting? You see? Mm -hmm. And that, that crops up in that first chapter. Well,
0: tell us about creating the tests that at the end of each of these chapters. Oh, those
3: are always fun for me. And I, again, it's because I've been a teacher of writing for so long. This is the most natural activity on earth for me to come up with sentences that involve the very uh, mistakes that I've been talking about in in a chapter or in a classroom. So I would write a letter from one character to another, but I would concentrate on making errors only in the topic of the chapter. For example, when I'm writing the quiz about uh, chapter one, which is, which contains the kinds of errors we were just talking about. Is it you? Is it yours? Is it who? Is it whom? Is it I? Is it me? Is it myself? Well, then I would create a letter from one character to another, and I would be writing some of those sentences correctly using the correct pronoun form. And I would be creating the other sentences incorrectly, hoping that my reader will be able to catch the problem. So but I would, as I'm writing that quiz, as I'm writing that letter, I have in my mind case. I'm not making any other kinds of mistakes because I'm, I'm, it's not my job to confuse you. And you're looking only for, for errors in case. In the next chapter, you're looking only for errors in agreement. In the next chapter, it's only tense. And then it's mood. And then a mood. That sounds funny, but that's verb mood is, is the name of a certain grammar area that causes us problems. And it, it involves uh, I wish I were or I wish I was. The were and the was business are part of the mood discussion very common native speaker mistake everybody's wishing they was when they should be wishing they were anyway that was certainly a (laughs) digression but uh you get my point that as I'm writing the mood uh, uh, quiz I'm thinking only of the verb form and is it correct or isn't it because am I speculating or am I not so I just change channels in my mind first I'm on case then I'm on agreement then I'm on mood then I'm on punctuation then I'm on modifiers and uh it's easy for me it's what I do most naturally
0: Janice Bell is an English professor and writing consultant and teaches writing and grammar at Golden Gate University. Her first book is Clean, Well-Lighted Sentences. Thank you for joining me, Janice. Oh, it's my pleasure.